This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Kids, if you're going to class, now is the time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we so look forward to that day when we will see you face to face, when your glory will be fully revealed to us and we will have been permanently cleansed of our sin. But Father, until that day, we, we look to your word and through it to you and to our Savior for the grace and the mercy that we need each day to live the life that you have called us to, to display you to others, to love others, to worship you, all these things, Father. We look to your word again this morning for them, and we pray that in your power and through your spirit, acting through your word, that you would, you would change our hearts. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Well, this is it. This morning is the last passage of 1 Peter. If you want to start heading there to chapter 5 in your Bibles. I don't know if any of you remember, but years ago there was a company. They may still be around. I don't know. But they claimed to have a test that you could take that would reveal your actual age as opposed to, I guess, your birth certificate age. They said they had a test that would, would look at your risk factors, and if, if you had a, a safe job and ate well and exercised regularly, then this test might show that your actual age was less than what your birth certificate said. But if you had a poor diet and you smoked a bunch of cigarettes and you rode a helicopter to your lion-taming job, the risk factors might say that you were older than what your birth certificate said. Now, I don't know about that test, but one of the things that I do know is that I think they missed one of the biggest risk factors of all, which is having children. Any parent will tell you that having kids is like dog years on a parent's life. Like, like for every, every child adds, adds like, like one year. So like if you have two kids, that's one regular year and two kids year. And so that's like three years every one year, which means some of you, because of your risk factors, are actually like 175 years old. Huh? Say again, Sonny? Yeah. Anyway, before we lose control right at the beginning, as we bring this letter to a close, Peter's been writing to give counsel to people who are living with the greatest risk factor of all. They have resolved to follow Jesus Christ in a world that is hostile toward them and their faith. So what Peter has done throughout his, his letter is explain how we are to live in that exile. And over and over again, one of the, one of the ways that Peter has described the, the, the Christian life is in this interesting intertwining, this commingling, this uh, union of blessing and suffering. 
In chapter 1, Peter showed us that, that various trials that grieve us, they, they actually reveal the tested genuineness of our faith. In chapter 2, he explained how we are both a chosen race and a royal priesthood, while at the same time sojourners and exiles. In chapter 3, he explained that a submissive and quiet spirit was the, the beauty that women of old adorned themselves with in the eyes of God. In the middle of chapter 3, he explained that blessing those who do evil to us will bring us a blessing. In chapter 4, he said that we should rejoice when we share in Christ's suffering because that will enable us to better rejoice when His glory is revealed. And he's, he's founded all of this truth in the example given to us by Christ. That Christ's suffering was not only vindicated, but, but it actually was proven to be His greatest glory. Suffering and blessing, hardship and privilege, adversity and help. These seemingly opposites, Peter has shown to be holding hands uh, throughout this whole letter. So, as Peter brings this letter to a close, he's going to remind us one more time. And what I want you to see this morning is that the road to glory is always paved with suffering. That the road to glory is always paved with suffering. Now, when I say glory, I don't mean fame and fortune. If you don't know me, this ain't that kind of church and I ain't that kind of pastor. I'm not talking about working hard and sacrificing for the American dream. I'm talking about the glory found in the presence of our Lord, that glory found when we finally depart this earth, whether by death or by Christ. Our Lord, who told us that we must take up our cross and follow Him, also said that this is a very important lesson for us to learn. Because humans are very much like water. We seek the path of re least resistance. So Peter is going to remind us again that, that this path to glory, on the other hand, is very much a path of resistance. So what does Peter say that road looks like for us? Well, he begins by giving us two couplets in verses 6 through 9. And if you'll remember from last week, he's going to pick up where he left off with humility in the first couplet. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, we don't look at humility so much as suffering, we look at it more as a virtue. And, and by all means, so does the Bible. But the humility we're comfortable with and the humility that Peter is talking about are two very different animals. Listen, our comfort with humility, it ends at unfairness. Our comfort with humility ends at unfairness. We're okay being humble so long as things are fair. We'll gladly do work for someone without being noticed if we respect them. But as soon as they become demanding or unfair, then, then we'll demand recognition or go elsewhere because we don't deserve to be treated like that. We'll gladly submit to a government as long as they're just. But if they begin to wield their power unjustly, then we have inalienable rights. 
You see, we're, we're humble all day long as long as it's fair, but that's not the kind of humility Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about humble submission under tyrannical governors and unjust bosses and unbelieving husbands, so long as we're not required to violate the Word of God. A submission, listen, that is not born out of respect for them, but out of fear of the almighty hand of God that ordained them. There's nobody that in any human institution that has gotten into a place of authority where God's like, dang it, I missed that one. It's a humility that understands that God alone is sovereign over the affairs of man and therefore we continue to humbly submit to those he has established. In fact, here's the kind of humility that Peter is describing. He's talking about the kind of humility that made the king of kings homeless for most of his adult life. He's talking about the kind of humility that kept the one who created the universe silent as he was spat on and beaten. He's talking about the kind of humility that held the perfectly righteous, almighty Son of God on the cross. He's talking about that kind of humility. Humility born from the sovereignty of God in the face of even cosmic injustice. The kind of humility found on the road down which our Savior has beckoned us follow Him. The road to glory is always paved with suffering. However, this is where our God leaves all other gods in the dust. Our God is a caring God. Our God is a, a loving God who delights. He loves to show off to His people. He loves to show off His strength and His care and His mercy to His people. Ours is a God who calls us to humble ourselves under His mighty hand, yet He understands our weakness and our temptation when we do that. He understands that that kind of humility will generate anxiety and unease and pain and suffering. Which is why Peter reminds us in this first couplet that yes, the road to glory is always paved with suffering, but you can cast those anxieties on God. The road, to suffering is, or the road to glory is always paved with suffering, but you can cast your anxieties on Him. Look at verse 7. He says, Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That word there, cast, it's an interesting word. It's, it's most often used in the sense of, of heaving something heavy that someone or something can no longer carry or bear. For example, after Judas had betrayed Jesus, he, he was unable to carry that guilt any further. So the Bible tells us that he took the 30 pieces of silver that the, leaders of the, the religious leaders had given him to betray Jesus, and he cast them down onto the floor of the temple. For those who lead little children astray, it says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea. When Paul's boat that he was sailing on to Rome began to sink in the storm, it says that the sailors cast the, the cargo and the, and the tackle overboard. That's the kind of God we serve. He, he, he says, my children, hurl, heave those anxieties that you can no longer bear onto me. 
Anybody who says they haven't had any anxieties over the past couple years isn't being honest with themselves. Because when you submit to, to human institutions, when you submit to any human authority, there's going to be anxiety. Are you worried that your humble submission to an authority might cause even further maltreatment if you don't stand up for yourself? Are you concerned that your humble submission might mean the, the difficulty of, of real change in your life, hard change? Are you concerned that your humble submission might require you to let go of some securities that you've clung to in the past? Or does humble submission just tick you off? Peter bids you cast that anxiety on the same almighty hand under which you've been called to humble yourself. How do you do that? How, how do you cast anxiety on God? The answer is actually very clear in the second half of verse 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The way you cast your anxieties on God is simply by believing that He cares for you. You see, we're really good at trusting God in theory. We're, 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 we trust God when generally, that God will generally work things out for our good. We trust that God generally loves us, but what, that trust, it often gets lost in the details. When specific anxieties rear their heads, that's when we tend to lose that trust. But Peter is telling us to cast specific anxieties on God by trusting that He cares for us in those specific moments. Meaning we cast specific anxieties on Him by trusting that nothing happens outside of His influence. We trust that He will do what's good and what's right because He cares for us even if we don't see the, the thousands of connections that He does. Even if we don't think what's going on is right, we still trust. That's how you cast your anxieties on the Lord, is you simply trust that He cares for you. The road to suffering, the road to glory is always paved with suffering, but you can cast your anxieties on Him. Look at the next couplet, where Peter describes the suffering that's caused by our enemy in verse 8. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, now just to be clear, how do I know that, that this, this humbling yourself and this sober-mindedness and resistance of our enemy, how do I know that that's suffering? Well, Peter tells us pretty clear, actually, in the second half of verse 9. He says the same kinds of suffering and being experienced by our brothers. And then in verse 10, he says, after you have suffered for a little while, referring to those verses before that. But how is this particular thing suffering? How is being sober-minded and resisting our enemy, how is that suffering? Well, Peter is talking about an enemy that will do anything to get you to reject God. Anything to get you to turn your back on Him. To, to, to get you to see Him as mean instead of gracious. To get you to call Him selfish instead of generous. To get you to 
Call him spiteful instead of loving. He will do anything. And the more you resist, the harder he'll pursue. And the number one play our enemy has in his playbook to that end, to get you to question God, to get you to turn your back on him, is suffering. You want to make someone question God, take away their job. Take away their their provision. Make them destitute. Make them hungry. Make them worry about the roof over their head or what they're going to eat tomorrow and then see what they think about their God. You want to tempt someone to question God, expose them to horrible violence and injustice. Make them a slave. Make them witness some of the worst things that man can do to each other and then see what they think about their God. Make parents watch their children be eaten alive from the inside out by cancer or sickness. Make men and women experience the kind of hate that that only someone who knows you as well as a spouse can inflict. Make children endure abuse of the worst nature and then see what they think about their God. Our enemy is like a lion on the prowl for one of God's weak, juicy little sheep to devour in the teeth of suffering and pain. Someone to chew up and swallow with hate and animosity and resentment and bitterness. Those are his weapons. And the closer you get to God, the more more useful you are to God, the more you are hunted by that ravenous beast. The road to glory is always paved with suffering, but look what Peter says. He says, yes, the, the road to glory is paved with suffering, but you're not alone. In verse 9, he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When Paul was in the region of Galatia, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, he says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, he's talking about Derby." He says, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Okay, how did he strengthen and encourage them? He said, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so what's the big deal about Lystra and Iconium? Why did he go back there? Well, listen to the context of the two verses that came immediately before this one. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Paul's lying in a ditch outside the middle of the city. It says, but when the disciples gathered about him, started poking him with a stick, see if he's still alive. It says, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. So Paul went back into the city that had just stoned him and left him for dead in the ditch in order to encourage the Christians who he knew were going to face that same kind of hatred. He went back to say, look guys, I'm still here. No doubt, he was covered in deep bruises. No doubt, His doctor, Luke, had probably put bandages everywhere. He probably looked like a swollen mummy. But he went back to say, keep going, guys. He he said it perfectly later in 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1, what he was doing. 
Listen to this passage. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and what? The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So why? Why does He comfort us in all our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings. Our hope, he says, for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The road to glory is paved with suffering. But know that when you feel alone and isolated on that road, you are never alone. You are never alone on this road. In the movie... Uh, Master and commander, a, a British sea captain, was tasked with sinking a French ship in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Brazil, I think. And the movie, like the book, it does a really good job of capturing the, the realities of maritime war in the early 19th century. Uh, one of those realities being the, the young age of many of the soldiers. We would call them boys. So one of the best scenes in this movie comes when they're this English ship is going to first attack this French ship, and one of these very young boys is terrified. And he turns around to look at the rest of the sailors, and, and, and he sees one of the old sea dogs just staring back at him right in the eye. And this old sea dog, is, his, his fists are clenched and held together like this, revealing to the young man a tattoo on, on eight of his knuckles saying, Hold fast. Later in that movie, that same young boy, he had to have his arm amputated because of an injury. And, of course, he was very, very afraid. But before that surgery, the doctor had to put a coin in the skull of that same old man for a head injury that he had had. So while this young man is awaiting his amputation, he watches as this old man's head is opened up on the, on the deck of this ship. And once again, the old man locks eyes with this kid and he puts his fists together while the doctor's working on his skull. And he reveals to this child again, hold fast. Our enemy will attack us with all different manner of pain and grief and suffering and trials. So is it any wonder that same enemy would also seek to corrupt one of the primary forms of, go of, of encouragement that our God gave us. See, our culture has conditioned us to fake it, to act like nothing's wrong because that exposes weakness. If you had parented right, your kids wouldn't have any problems. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be frustrated or overwhelmed or, or afraid because that displays your lack of faith. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough faith. That's why you're overwhelmed. The road to glory is paved with suffering, but you are not alone. Brothers and sisters, if your enemy is seeking to devour you with some kind of suffering, I'll even wager that you don't have to look all over the world 
for a brother or sister. I'll bet you you could find someone that God has placed right here in this room within 50 feet of you who could clench their fists and bid you to hold fast. To hold fast to the mighty hand of God, even in the deepest of trials. But you've got to open up. To hold fast to the glorious hope of your salvation, even during the darkest grief. To hold fast to the immense comfort of a sovereign God. To continue to resist your enemy's attempts to get you to lower your gaze from the face of your Savior. You're never alone. The road to glory is paved with suffering. And Peter has told us, but we can cast our anxieties on him and we are never alone. And finally, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The last thing Peter wants you and I to hear is, yes, the road to glory is always paved with suffering. But it ends with Christ. It ends with Christ in glory. Peter uses four incredible verbs to describe what Jesus will do when we meet Him on that day. That word restore there is one that Peter would have been intimately familiar with It's translated often as mend. It's what Peter would have done every day when he came in from fishing to his nets. He's saying that when you and I reach the end of this road, the Lord Himself will put us back together. He'll take the broken parts and replace them with new parts. But not only will He mend us, Peter says the God of all grace will confirm us. Literally, he's saying that God our Father will stand us back up on our feet. I think of a runner who gets to the end of a marathon, and you've seen them, they're delirious. They can't hardly keep running. They're tripping and falling, and they, they, they collapse across the, the finish line. And Peter says, when you do that in this life, I'll be there to put you back on your feet. And finally, Peter says he will strengthen and establish us. Those are both architectural terms, meaning God will permanently affix us to the rock of ages. We will be moored to the eternal Father in heaven. And we cannot be moved. We will no longer be knocked down or separated from Him. We will be eternally established in the presence of God. When we are done with this life, listen, we won't just be done. I I ask myself often, how many millennia will it be before we just get off our faces in heaven? When we're done with this life, we won't just be done, we won't just be finished. We will be restored. We'll be restored into the presence of God forever, having been pried free from the grip of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We will see him face to face at the end of this road. When we get to the end of this road that is, that is paved with suffering, we will be permanently cleansed of all our unrighteousness so that we can spend eternity in the presence of our Father. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen? Let me leave you with the same thing that Peter does. Look at what he says in the concluding verses in verse 12. He says, by Sylvanus, meaning this letter is being delivered by a guy named Sylvanus. He probably had something to do with light bulbs. <laughs> a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Listen, he's saying, I have written briefly to you. Why? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, he's probably talking about Rome who is likewise chosen, they send you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, that's the gospel Mark writer. Greet one another with a, with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. The road to glory is always paved in suffering, but you can cast your anxieties on Him. Is that not a truth that we can stand in? The road to glory is always paved with suffering, but we're never alone. Can we stand on that truth? These are questions, people. They come with answers. The road to glory is paved with suffering, but it ends with Christ. Can we stand on that truth? Can we stand firm in it? We must. We have to. We have to stand firm in the truth of our glorious hope of salvation. The glorious hope of our salvation, it must be the truth on which we humbly, obediently stand firm on this road to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how beautiful you are, how wonderful you are. What an amazing God you are that you would call us to do something so difficult and at the same time with the very next breath give us the, the comfort and the, the tools and the camaraderie that we need to accomplish this call. It's shocking to me Lord that you would, you would call us to do something and then offer to carry the heavy part for us. And for that Lord we know that for eternity we will praise and worship and glorify you. And it is that eternity that we so look forward to. It's the hope that beckons us forward on this road that, that Jesus has already walked. So, Father, we look to Him as an example and as an encouragement. We rely on the Comforter whom You have sent and, and, and those who He is working through to encourage and strengthen us. Father, I pray that You would Give us a heart of, of interdependence. I pray for those who are, are selfishly holding on to their, to their grief and their pain. That you would allow them and, and, and help them to share that. Not only so that they can be comforted, Lord, but so that they can be grown and comforted in order to comfort others. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your gift of your son. 
because it is only in Him that all of these gifts and Your incredible blessing is found. So, Father, it is in His name that we pray. Amen.